Hello there and welcome. This is Hugh here and you're listening to the very first episode of The Friendly Podcast, a brand new multimedia project from Ireland's yearly meeting. Over the next few weeks, I'll be sharing a range of Quaker voices from home and abroad to hear their views about being friends today. This podcast series launches on World Quaker Day in 2022, an annual event organised by Friends World Committee for Consultation, which celebrates Quakerism in Friends churches and meeting houses around the world. Tim G from Britain Yearly Meeting was recently appointed as General Secretary of the organisation, which has their world office at Friends House on Euston Road in London. I caught up with Tim recently to find out how World Quaker Day has evolved in recent years, but first I asked him about his experience of being part of Ireland Yearly Meeting in session when we met at Stranmillet's College in Belfast. Well, it was absolutely wonderful. It was my first time in Northern Ireland and it was my first time at Ireland Yearly Meeting. And I found it just a wonderful space, a wonderful place. I felt very welcomed. Uh, it felt like a lot of people knew each other and perhaps had known each other for quite a long time. So that meant that for those of us for whom it was a first time, it felt very easy to kind of fit into that. So that was very nice. And it was also my first in-person yearly meeting since starting this job at the beginning of this year. Um, I've been to a lot of online yearly meetings in Australia, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in other places. Uh, but it was really, really lovely to be there together. That's a really special feeling. Was that your first time to Ireland? Not my first time to Ireland. I've no. been in the Republic uh, quite a number of times, but it was my first time uh, in Northern Ireland. And I the the policy in the Europe and Middle Eastern section of um, Friends World Committee for Consultation is to travel by land and sea where possible. So I um, came by land and sea and that was wonderful. How has World Quaker Day come about then? Is this this is something relatively new? So I believe that it is less than 10 years old. Uh, so it is a relatively new event and comes from a recognition that I think a lot of Quakers in the world um, kind of know that there are Quakers in other countries and probably feel happy about that uh, or maybe curious about that. But from a desire to create a moment where everyone could make an extra effort to think about and to connect with Quakers in other countries, especially if those friends might be worshipping in a different tradition or a different language uh, or in a way that might be unfamiliar somehow. And so that's where the idea came from. And yes, it's been going for a number of years. And I think it's it's becoming an important part of the Quaker calendar, I think. it's um, It's been a slow start, but it's... Yeah, it's it's a thing that I think it feels like there's increasing energy around. Is that just because of greater awareness of it as time passes or a case of trial and error initially? Um, because it, it seems. It seems like a really important thing to have a day to celebrate Quakers. Yes. So. I think. I mean, every day is an a opportunity to celebrate Quakers and indeed to celebrate Quakers around the world. But it feels like there is a, this is not just Quaker Day, it's World Quaker Day. So it's an opportunity for Quakers to connect with friends in other countries, especially so. Um, 
I don't know exactly uh, what the driving factors are of it uh, catching on. But this year, um, there is something specific that people can do. I think in maybe maybe in the past, kind of, it's been announced as a date, and then different people have done different things, and that's great. Uh, but this year, there's something that we are putting together um, from the from the the world office, and that is the opportunity to visit Quakers in other countries, and of course. The, terrible pandemic which we are still in but it feels like we might be passing through has meant that um in some ways the world feels a little smaller because many of us although not all of us are much more familiar with uh, meeting and worshiping together online so this year because there's so many uh, quaker meetings and friends churches who are meeting in hybrid format so part online part in person that seemed like a wonderful opportunity for hybrid intervisitation so some people will be visiting uh, other Quaker communities in person but hundreds of people will be joining uh, virtually either watching live streams or joining uh, zoom Quaker meetings for worship and maybe there's a kind of new opportunity to do that in a way that there hasn't been before are you pleasantly surprised just how much friends around the world have taken tea technology? I am. I think it's probably been of necessity rather than a plan. Although Quakers, because lots of people obviously mix up Quakers and Amish, and uh, so I realise it's against some people's ideas of Quakerism, but there's an argument to say that Quakers have often been at the cutting edge of uh, technology. So the early uh, early Quakers, of course, uh, taking full advantage of the technology at the, of their time for uh, printing and distributing pamphlets um, in a in a way that would have been a lot more difficult in previous generations. And I am glad about the way that uh, the internet brings a lot of people together. Um, and it's meant that people can sometimes participate in Quaker meetings in a way where they might have been isolated previously if they lived in a place where there were not so many Quakers or if they had trouble getting out of the house. Um, of course, from this role, I am acutely aware that a significant proportion of Quakers around the world don't have access to uh, good internet connection and good uh, resources. Um, addressing that is part of what I hope we can do over the next few years. But until we've done that, then some old-fashioned in-person intervisitation is still going to be part of what we do and absolutely necessary. On that, can you tell me about some of the recent trips that you have been on? Yes. So... My the beginning of this year was um, was a lot of online visiting, so a lot of yearly meetings and other Quaker gatherings were happening online. Um, but since a few months ago, that's changing. So of course, I was at Ireland yearly meeting uh, where I had a wonderful time, met with wonderful people. Uh, not long afterwards, I was visiting in a number of the countries which border Russia and Ukraine. So meeting with Quakers in Riga, in Latvia, and then in Warsaw, in Poland, and then in 
Estonia. And Quakers in these countries are sparse, not very many at all, but very spirited and proportionate to their numbers, the work that they're doing to welcome refugees from Ukraine and other countries for that matter is really extraordinary and quite inspiring. And they are getting a, some uh, some funds from friends in other countries. And I saw those being spent really well. And I'm sure that more funds would be spent equally well. Was Quakerism always part of your life, Tim, growing up? So I'm from a Quaker family and both my parents are Quakers and all of my grandparents are Quakers. The youth events changed my life. I think um, they were the highlights of my year. But I am a Quaker by convincement and by choice as well. There was a point in my mid-twenties where I decided, yes, this is the community that I want to remain being part of. And I, I partly made that decision actually after visiting some Quakers out of my home country of England. I was uh, in the US. I was traveling from one side to the other, staying with Quakers on the way. And I had a ecstatic experience in a Quaker meeting for worship that helped me understand and feel what the inner light is, not just a theoretical thing or a set of words. Like I, I felt it and I felt it in myself and every people in the meeting and all around the world. And that's obviously an amazing experience. And, and there's that line from George Fox, isn't there? I, um, I saw a, an, an ocean of love and light flowing over the ocean of darkness and death. And I, I felt like that and came home and I was like, yeah, this is the community for me. So I joined at that point. So I call myself a Quaker by culture and a Quaker by convincement. As far as I remember reading, FWCC was founded in 1937. Mm. I've gone back and read some of the um, some of the minutes from the, the first World Conference of Friends, which was in 1920, which then uh, led to this second one in 1937, where the um, FWCC was, well, the agreement to set up FWCC um, was made. And they are extraordinary. Um, in 1920, uh, some of the friends at and around those conferences were making the kinds of, were sharing the kinds of analysis, which with hindsight, we can see if they had been listened to, could have stopped the Second World War. So I find that quite inspiring because it reminds me that Quakers often have something very helpful to say, and I'm glad that I'm now in a position to try and amplify that. And the other thing about the First World Conference of Friends was that I'm told that before that, there were significant parts of the Quaker family that weren't talking to each other, or if, or if they were talking to each other, they were arguing with each other. And I think there is it's very important that we practice what we preach. If we want the world community of nations to be coming together in a room and finding commonalities rather than fighting, then we need to do that in our own community as well. And I do feel inspired and encouraged by that, um, that even the existence of 
Friends World Committee for Consultation is a form of peace building. And the kinds of skills that we learn and develop and hone through doing this in our own community, we can hopefully use with others too. Do you find the role as General Secretary is, was it daunting to take on initially? I, I'm certainly daunting. I, I mean, I obviously applied to it thinking that this would be it would be quite quite amazing quite extraordinary perhaps if the committee should decide that they would want me to be their general secretary um and i was just delighted when they said yes uh after a long, long interview process involving many levels, many rounds of interviews. It is daunting, but I serve a community. So it's not all on me. It's my role to support this wonderful, inspiring community. And the community of Quakers inspires me every day. And it's my role to resource that community to come together um, sometimes in uh, world global events, sometimes in um, smaller scale uh, gatherings, and and when I say it that way, you know, I'm a general secretary with a small G and a small S to this wonderful community of people, then that feels a bit more achievable, and I like to remind myself of that. So I'm right in saying that 2024 will be quite a significant birthday for a certain fox. <laughs> 2024 will be a huge year for global Quakerism. So it's going to be George Fox's 400th birthday. And I think, and I've discovered that many other people think, that looking forward to something joyful to do together is just a tremendously good thing to be doing. And the mission and purpose of the Friends World Committee for Consultation is to communicate our common heritage to the world. One of the things that Quakers in all countries have in common is our origins and our heritage. And by celebrating what happened in the 1650s in England and then very soon afterwards in Ireland and many other countries of the world, is, is something that we need to do for ourselves because we need to remind ourselves that we have survived and grown over centuries, which we sometimes forget. I think it's important um, generationally as well within Quakerism, especially in the more unprogrammed silent worship forms of Quakerism, uh, those that storytelling isn't always as strong as it could be, even within families or even between um, generations within uh, Quaker meetings. So that's another um, part of it. And thirdly, let's just do something nice together. <laughs> even people who might disagree with each other or might have different feelings about how we are now let's celebrate where we came from together and then that'll be easier if we do have differences or disagreements to to have those well so that's a bit of the thinking about celebrating 
George Fox's 400th birthday. Um, we don't actually know which day it is. The first uh, page of his journal says in the year called July. Uh, he says he was born in the year. Sorry, sorry, in the month called July. There we go. Um, so I think that means we can celebrate all July. And then in August, we're going to have our first world plenary meeting for more for I think it'll be about nine years since we had our last one. So that's huge as well. Every single yearly meeting in the world uh, sending forth an in-person representative to meet in South Africa. And then as many people as want to joining online from around the world to participate as part of that. That's going to be huge in August. And I hope that many friends in Ireland will be amongst that number. I haven't been to one before, which um, makes maybe makes the process of being part of organising one a little bit more difficult. Um, but I have, I've always been aware of them as they happen and read the outcomes of them. And the World Plenary is more than just about the people who go, because proportional to World Quakerism, it's a relatively small number who are able to participate, even in hybrid format. It is a possibility for, you know, if if the world community of friends is going to act together in a useful way in the context of the multiple crises currently facing the world, then events like this are one of the only ways that we can agree together how we do so and provide those sometimes pivotal um, moments and opportunities to take us in particular directions. So uh, 10 years ago at the World Conference in Kenya, for example, the Kabarak call for peace and eco-justice came out of that, which has been foundational in a huge amount of international Quaker work for climate justice. Um, I hope that 2024 will be similarly pivotal. Um, exactly how, I don't know. And it's it's not really my role to know. It's, <laughs> it's the role of the spirit moving amongst the people present there. Are you conscious, is FWCC conscious of the numbers of Global Friends at the moment? Well, the last official count was in 2017 when we produced the world map that you might have seen uh, and at that point it was about 400,000. Um, there is a count going on in the USA at the moment which may well spread uh, throughout the Americas but we don't have a global updated number on that 2017 number yet. Um, we do know that there are countries where it's growing like Burundi uh, there are also countries where it's getting smaller and um, Britain and the USA are amongst those. I guess it isn't FWCC's role to to try and bring in more people to the community? And I think an international view is very helpful for that. I think if if someone's view of Quakerism is very national, if it's focused on Ireland or Britain or USA, um, then it's possible to feel like I don't know how numbers are in Ireland, but it's possible to feel like kind of it's declining. Uh, if you look at it globally, Quakerism has been growing for centuries and probably still is. It's just we've not done another count recently. So as a global 
communion. We are vibrant, we have survived, we are spreading to new places, people are still uh, doing great work for peace. I mean, the, the principal mission of FWCC is to bring people together from different countries and different strands of Quakerism uh, in order to communicate our common message and heritage to the world. So it's not uh, specifically to grow the, uh, the world communion of friends. But one thing that I hope we can do is bring insights from those countries where Quakerism really seems to be kind of growing very fast and see what friends in other countries can learn from that. And whilst, you know, some of the theology and some of the practices and so on will be different, I feel absolutely certain that there are things that we can learn from each other. It feels right to say that the the principles and the testimonies around Quakerism will always be relevant. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. I mean, we need the peace testimony more than ever, uh, or at least as much as ever uh, right now. Um, as the world is becoming more and more unequal, we're going to need our testimony to equality. Uh, as fake news and um, dishonesty in politics seems to be certainly rife in a number of powerful countries, then I think a testimony to truth is central to that. In the context of climate breakdown, then simplicity and sustainability seem like the kinds of things that we're going to need to hold on to. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think I think our testimonies are as relevant as ever. And we discover in every new generation, in every new context, how it is. Do you think your life would be very different had you not found friends? I think it would be very different. I mean, I have always been a Quaker. So in some ways, it's difficult to compare. But my life is better because I'm a Quaker. I was talking with a friend in Burundi recently. I was asking, why, why, why did... How how come how come Quakerism in Burundi is growing so rapidly? And he said, um, "Well, firstly, it's because we're democratic, and uh, people have a say in their congregation, and people like that, and that's quite unusual. And secondly, people's life gets better when they're a Quaker." And he was talking about miracles, and and I was thinking about this, and I suspect that my understanding or my approach to miracles or interpretation of miracles is maybe slightly different to his. But I have experienced many times, personally and tangibly, the miracles that can come from being part of a loving community. And I can think, I won't talk about them now, but I can think of three times in my life where I've been in quite a personal pickle, a crisis, and gently Quakers have reached out and caught me. And I think if they hadn't, my life would be, I'll, you know, I could have reached very bad places. But Quakers reached out and caught me, and my life is a lot better as a result. So I think we could be more confident about saying, your life gets better when you're a Quaker. 
because I think I've shared this story with a number of people and most people I can think of, most people I've spoken to can think of a way that their life has got better mm-hmm. because they're a Quaker. Do you find many people ask you outside of outside of Quakers about being a Quaker? Uh, yes, and increasingly so now. Um, I think amongst people my age and I'm guessing our age, um, belief in God and desire to be part of a religious community is increasingly uncommon, uh, certainly in Europe. And I think amongst my friends and other people my age, I think for some there's a kind of curiosity about it. It's this kind of peering into a world that probably seems quite unfamiliar and maybe people are a bit curious about, but maybe a bit um, a bit nervous or nervous of as well. And I enjoy having those conversations. I enjoy being confident about my faith and also very open to kind of thinking it possible that I'm mistaken or exploring how it might manifest all rooted in uh, a firm and experienced uh, belief in God. So yeah, I think people do ask me about Quakerism a lot. But instead of, I think once upon a time, I might have like started talking about the uh, the events of the war that was happening in the 17th century and how Quakers came out of it and starting telling that story. And that's not what I do anymore. Now, I, if someone's curious, I would have a conversation about faith and... I think maybe Quakerism is a sufficiently kind of uh, open and inclusive um, way of being that maybe some people might feel safe or comfortable having that conversation with a Quaker. Um, so yeah, people do ask those questions and I, I love it. It's sort of, it sounds like it's unofficial outreach in some ways. <laughs> Well, you know, the first time I flew in this job, um, you know, at airports, they always ask you, like, what's your job? So I was I was leaving London and it was some awful hour in the morning and I was quite tired and the person asked, well, what's your job? And I was like, oh, do I really, oh, do I need to start? Oh, I, I work for a church. And I was thinking afterwards, I'm the general secretary of Friends World Committee for consultation. I should, I should be a bit more confident about this. So I got to the other end. It was Philadelphia. I got to the other end. And I said, I said, who what's your work? And I said, I work for the Quakers. And now anytime that anyone asks, I work for the Quakers. And if they've got a question, I answer it. And I enjoy every opportunity to do that rather than just muttering into my beard that I work for a church. I don't do that anymore. About an hour north of Pendle Hill, where George Fox climbed and had his vision for change in the mid-17th century, you might stumble upon Kendall, a market town and civil parish in the South Lakeland district of Cumbria in England. Since April of 1994, the town has been home to the Quaker Tapestry Museum. Since then, it has welcomed over 360,000 visitors. 
Today the museum is looked after by a small staff team and a dedicated band of volunteers with a range of panels on display telling the Quaker story since its foundation over three centuries ago. At the end of 2021, Bridget Guest retired as general manager of the museum after 27 years of service. She told me how Kendall Meeting House always felt like a natural home for the exhibition. We are based in a very large meeting house in Kendall that was designed in 1816 and it has huge rooms and it was designed to house about 850 Quakers at once in big meetings, big area meetings. Maybe maybe they even had some yearly meetings here, I don't know. Um, but it, there was a meeting house on the site here in Kendall since the 1680s. So the 1652 country, as it's affectionately known amongst Quakers, is something that um, Joe Public hasn't heard of. They don't know. And in fact, a lot of our visitors think that Quakerism started in America. Um, so, so that in itself is a bit of an education. When they come and they see the first panels they will see as they go into the museum are depicting some of the early years. Um, so it's, it's very fitting. And uh, it came about because Anwyn Wilson, who was the founder of the Quaker Tapestry, she started it all in a Quaker Sunday school in January 1981. After they'd, when they got sort of 10 years down the line and they'd made quite a lot of panels and they were starting to have exhibitions and realising that it wasn't just Quakers that were interested in this. This had a much wider appeal. and People were asking questions and wanting to see it. So it was exhibited in um, all sorts of places before Kendall, like um, Aberdeen Art Gallery it went to. Uh, it went to Waterford in Ireland. Uh, it went to parts of America. Uh, it was in the House of Commons for a while, places like that. And there they had masses of visitors, not, not just Quakers, but lots of people. And they realised that they would soon need a home to house it permanently um, so that people knew where they could go and see it for most of the year. So um, Anne Wilson, the founder, was having lunch with her sister one day in Bradford-on-Avon, where she lived at that time. And it was a chance meeting with somebody from, a lady called Marion from Kendall Meeting. And then they shared lunch together and Anne talked about the Quaker Tapestry and mentioned that they were looking for a home for it. And Marion from Kendall said, oh, I wonder if Kendall Meeting House would be suitable. We've been trying to sell it since 1990 and nobody wants it because of the restrictions. It's a listed building, restrictions on what you can do with it. And so I think Anne came up from Bradford on Avon to Kendall two weeks later <laughs> to have a look at the Meeting House. And it was huge. It was far too big for Kendall Meeting, which had, was quite small at that time. So... She said, yes, let's have it. So it was a sort of nice sort of marriage between the Quaker Tapestry and Candle Meeting, Candle Local Friends, but also the area meeting. Uh, so we're in an area meeting called Candle and Sedba area meeting. It meant that the, with the Quaker Tapestry coming and we did lots of renovations, the roof needed repairing, everything needed decorating. The largest of the meeting rooms on the ground floor was turned into the exhibition space. It meant that Kendall Friends could keep their meeting house. 
So it is a living, breathing, working meeting house, just like any meeting house up and down the country. And we also rent the rooms to the community on a regular basis once that's up and running again. It's starting to come back now. Um, so that's, that's one of our extra income streams that helps to keep the museum going because the museum itself, we're a registered charity. We're, we're totally independent. So we're not financed by anybody but ourselves. So finding the money to keep us going is something, is an ongoing concern really. So we have lots of, um, we're very creative and we can, we've dreamed up lots of new income streams. One of them being room hire. Another one is um, we, we've got a cafe and we, we sort of hire the cafe out, the peppercorn rent to somebody who runs it as their own business. But because it's on the premises, it's like the museum cafe, which is lovely. It's called the garden cafe. And that's using the old warden's cottage. And Quakers will know about warden's cottages up and down the country. And above the, the, the cafes on the ground floor of the warden's cottage, and above that is a self-contained flat that we use for vo visiting volunteers that come and help them with the museum. But of course, during the pandemic, we, we opened it as um, an Airbnb. So we got lots of visitors staying in it at the moment and obviously paying their fees, which again are going towards helping to keep the museum going. The ticket sales alone don't ever bring enough income in uh, in, in any museum up and down the country museums are all are all looking for finance all the time but particularly the independent ones that are not government backed or local government backed so you're saying the tapestries came to be in 1981 mm -hmm. it almost feels like it's hard to imagine them not being part of the quaker story almost it almost feels like they are always there because they're so <laughs> impactful i'm guessing for kendall it almost felt like the same in a sense that you know it it sounds like they were always meant to be there. Yes, I suppose so. It's nice for them to be here for Quakers because when they come and do their fox trot, as they call it, and wander around following George Fox's footsteps, they they usually add a visit to the Quaker Tapestry Museum in normally at the end, and it's it sort of rounds off their their journey, if you like, because normally it's a journey of discovery, isn't it? When you come on those sixteen fifty two um holidays and and so it rounds it off beautifully and you're right it it looks because even though it was it was started in 1981 it's a modern embroidery it does look older because of the way that Anne has created them along with well 4,000 people involved in making it but Anne was very much a linchpin and the children of Taunton meeting meeting where it all began in the Sunday school. Um, obviously, they they were very much uh, involved. And so it's always been a, a sort of children's and community project. And therefore, maybe because it was started for children and it was storytelling, maybe that's why it's so easy to get the stories, to get what they mean. It's pictures, it's words. And because it's embroidery, it's got depth it's got a 3d quality you it's very tactile you want to touch it but we have now put them behind glass so <laughs> you can't touch it because we don't want you we want it to live a long time as long as the bayer tapestry at least um 
and we want it to maintain its brilliant colours because it's really very colourful and bright and vibrant. But it somehow has this wonderful way of telling the stories. I, I particularly love the children's designs and their embroidery because children have a way when they draw, they draw what they think. You can almost see their brain working when they draw and they don't think about it too much. So um, you'll see all four legs on the cow or the pig. or the, <laughs> uh, the, They don't bother about perspective. There's a lovely, there's a lovely image. Well, I say lovely, it's powerful of a woman in jail. And it's just, it just looks like a, a bit of a cave, an outline of a cave with bars in front of it. And this stick woman behind the bars and then around the cave, the rounded sort of cave, like a, a sort of plum pudding almost, there are crosses. And then there's a baby outside. And that, that story is about a woman who, a Quaker woman who was imprisoned for her beliefs at the time when, you know, after the Civil War and religion was all over the place. Um, and it depicts the woman in jail by this child's drawing. And she, she wasn't allowed to have her baby in jail with her. So the baby is outside. The red crosses outside depict the soldiers. And so that's, what, that's the image they conjured up from the story they were told. Um, and it's incredibly powerful because as soon as you know the story, it's, it becomes very emotional. And, and a lot of the panels do that. In fact... I remember one morning uh, I went um, into the exhibition room and it was all very quiet and there were only a few people in it. I, there may have only been this one woman in and I was just wandering around seeing if everybody was all right and all the light bulbs were working, you know. And uh, this woman was absolutely in tears. And you sort of think, ooh, do I... Do I go and see if she's all right? Do I leave her alone? You know, so I sort of tentatively sidled up to her and said, you all right? You know, can I help in any way? And she just, through her tears, rolling down her face, she just said, she said, I'm from, I'm from Australia. And she said, I've been longing to see this for so long. I've heard about it. And she just said, it's incredibly emotional because of that, but also it's much more powerful than I ever thought it could be. The books, we have books, we have videos. They really don't do it justice. It's only when you get in front of it and that three-dimensional, beautiful quality of embroidery that you know is taken hours and hours and hours. It's, it is very, very powerful. It's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm not surprised the favourite comments in the visitor's book, inspirational. And they mean that in so many ways when you actually talk to visitors. Can you tell me more about some of your favourite panels? Because I know that there's quite a strong Irish connection with the tapestries themselves. There is, yeah. There are two, two Irish panels. One is showing the time of the Troubles, where you've got the, the Quakers helping in the prisons. I think they're making it easy. Uh, they're, they're creating cafes in prisons, serving lunch and coffees and teas, facilitating visiting of families and children to people who've been imprisoned during those times. Um, also helping to mix the Protestant, Protestants and Catholics 
you know, in areas. So there's no distinction. There's no separation. It's it's for everybody. Um, those that part that is 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 a lovely panel. And then there's an older panel. Uh, well, it's not. It's the same age, but it's <laughs> it's depicting older times. Of the, it's called the Great Hunger. Was it 1845? I think rings a bell in my head. And that was just a, a, a dreadful time in Ireland during the potato famine. I mean, Irish people will, will, will know the whole story. That was just dreadful. And Quakers were incredibly helpful, uh, both from, from, from the UK, uh, from America, from, from Ireland, in, in helping in all sorts of ways. Like, for example, Colebrookdale, that was run by the Abraham Darbys, they made great big soup cauldrons and they sent several of these, I don't know how many, hundreds of these over to make soup so that people would have, you know, and the Quakers, you know, designed soup kitchens and gave out food to, to anybody in need uh, at that time and helped to save, to save some lives. We were, the, the Quaker Tapestry went to Mount Melick in, in Ireland in, I think it was 2013. I was just overwhelmed, actually, at the welcome we got from the whole of Mount Melick town. They all knew about Quakers and the work that had gone on in, during the time of the Great Hunger. And so it was, it was almost as if they were welcoming. It was like a homecoming. <laughs> and they were welcoming the Quaker Tapestry home because it, it depicted all these wonderful stories of the work that Quakers had done over the years. And we had thousands and thousands of visitors to that. It was an absolute joy. And there was this lovely link with embroidery because, of course, Mount Melick, the museum we were exhibiting in, Mount Melick Museum, has restored and kept archives of the old Mount Melick white work, which is white embroidery, white cotton embroidery on cotton. And that was um, sort of founded in the time when, of the Great Hunger, when materials were hard to come by, people didn't have any money. People had to find different ways of earning a living other than potato growing. And so a Quaker lady started taking flour sacks, uh, using them as fabric, um, using the cotton that was readily around Mount Melik with all the sort of industry of the cotton production around there. Um, and with the different threads of, of cotton, uh, white cotton on this white flour sack material, uh, they made tray cloths and things that were popular during that 19th century time. And they sold that she taught the women how to embroider. They, they had a little community women's cooperative almost going and um, they, they learned how to embroider, they could sell their things. It was one of the ways of earning, earning some money and doing something positive out of a complete disaster. And, that, and that's just a tiny story. Um, but the Mount Melick Museum has resurrected this. And, and so it's, it's becoming popular again. All those crafts and mindful activities are, are very popular. So we, we had a ball in Mount Melick. It was great fun. How long are you involved with the museum, Bridget? I've been involved since 1994. So I came about when, when they were first setting the museum up as a, a public um, exhibition. 
Um, so at that time, was there a lot of talk about it within the yearly meeting? There was some interest. And in fact, because it had been going since 1981, and in 1982, Anne, the founder, took a little exhibition to, I think it was the yearly meeting in Warwick in 1982. And she put up this little exhibition because she wanted to show uh, people what she was doing because when she was creating these panels in, in their Sunday school with the children, for a start, the adults soon got to hear about what the children were doing and they realised the children were having far too much fun. So they joined in with the project. And what Anne realised she'd got on her hands was this wonderful tool in making the embroideries for education and outreach and inreach. Because sitting around a table, learning embroidery, over coffee, cups of tea, bowls of soup, the meeting, her meeting in Taunton were getting to know each other far more than just coffee time after Sunday meeting for worship. Because it was a safe environment that, that you know, new attenders could ask those awkward questions that they might think, well, I've been attending for 10 years, I should know that. But around a, little, a small group of people doing something else to take your mind off it, you can ask those questions of, what do Quakers think about this? And remind me what goes on in the marriage ceremony. And, you know, <laughs> all those sorts of things. It's a, it's a nice, safe environment. And, and so they very much did. And consequently, because of that little exhibition in Warwick, what, she, what happened was more and more people got involved and she found that meetings up and down the country and even overseas wanted to take part in it. So it, it is well known. I mean, I took it to, I took the workshops to Australia in 2007 because I teach the embroidery. And the Australians wanted to learn the techniques and the community way of working because they wanted to produce an Australian version of the Quaker tapestry. And so from, I did a little week long workshop in Sydney and one in the Blue Mountains and they are making 40 panels. And I think they're, they're over 20 now. They've got about 27 finished of their 40. They're well on the way to their goal, but they, they're very well established and very much at the heart of what they're doing is the yearly meeting in Australia which I think is in February every year. And they, I think they go every year and put up a display of what they've done so far. Now, the yearly meeting at the time in the 1980s said they didn't want to get too involved, but they were very happy for Anne to keep going, be independent. And they, she had a really good committee around her. So they kept going. So we're not, we are a recognised independent Quaker group. We're recognised by the yearly meeting, but we're not subsidised by them in any way. Is Anne still with us? Still very much with me. <laughs> but sadly, no, she, she died in 1998. She was 72. It was, it was a massive stroke that she had, uh, which, which took her away from us. And um, she'd seen... 98, so the exhibition had been going for four years. So she'd seen that well-established. She was start, starting to take more of a back seat. She'd got grandchildren 
that she wanted to get to know better and she she'd spent the last 17 years of her life absolutely you know steeped in embroidery and Quaker tapestry so she was having a well-deserved rest really um so it was it was a sad time but wow what a legacy that she's left <laughs> exactly so you've been involved with it since 94 as you were saying do you think you have learned or do you think you look on Quakers at large in a very unique way or do you think by not being involved with the museum all these years you would have found your experience of being involved with friends very different that's interesting my I grew up in a Quaker family my my mother was a Quaker her father was a Quaker my father was Church of England he's now more of a Quaker than anything so you know I was very much aware of Quakers I um I was a member of staff on on the Yorkshire Friends Holiday School uh, for about six years. That was before I came to work at the Quaker Tapestry. But here, I suppose the majority of people that we meet on a day-to-day basis are not Quakers, surprisingly. I don't know the exact makeup of the visitors, but I suspect we get about 5% are Quakers. I was asking Simon, who's working front of house today, um, I was asking him what any feed, any did he have any interesting feedback recently? Uh, and he's, you know, what type of visitors, what are they being, you know? And he said he had a lovely conversation with two Jewish people who came in to see the exhibition and they, they'd wanted to see it for a long time. And what they're doing is, they're they're going to as many different to look and find out more about as many different religious groups as possible that they, they want to sort of learn more and they they discovered they really enjoyed their visit here and they discovered that um the more they learn about different religions the more similarities they actually discover which i thought was a lovely thing to say um but those were two jewish people one, there was one young man also he mentioned uh, in his sort of 20s, I would say, he said he was. Uh, he was a new, new to Quakers in the last sort of four or five years. And he, he wanted to come and see the Quaker tapestry. He'd heard about it and he wanted to learn more about the Quakers. So he was definitely doing some inreach, you would call it, wouldn't you? Um, by coming and learning more about the history of Quakers. Of course, what's depicted in the panels is is very much a lot, of, even though it's history and it goes right through to the 1990s, uh, it was completed in 96. It very much resonates with what Quakers believe today. A lot of the stories you, we can identify with. I love the story of John Woolman. Way before his time, this young man who was in his early 20s, that his remark upon leaving was, he felt very proud to actually be a Quaker. It sort of made him, and, and, and it's not really a, a sort of thing that you, you think Quakerism, Quakers should experience, you know, we shouldn't be proud. <laughs> but it, it, it's often said by Quakers, I feel proud to be associated with this. So I think it's wonderful that the tapestries do it. I, I, I often think it, it sort of whispers gently behind your ear without you realising that you, in getting these stories and being told these stories, 
you're actually getting a huge amount of education in a, in a lovely way, um, a storybook way. We've celebrated the good things, obviously. We've celebrated the wonderful things in history that the Quakers were involved in, things in the you know Industrial Revolution, things that wouldn't be here if, if it hadn't been for some Quakers. Um, powerful powerful things that they do something something we use in our marketing I, I, i've got it here i'll read it it says it's stories of quakers who made a history with their deeds of discovery and daring stories of railways revolutions and remarkable people and that's what people get when they leave they they get that essence of how remarkable it is and a lot of the comments in the visitors book do say things like do you know, if everybody was a Quaker, there wouldn't be wars in the world. That, that's an amazing thing to say. And they, and um, as I say, Quakers feel very proud to be associated with it, um, with that history. Has there ever been talk about adding to the collection? Well, yes, because one of, as a, as a museum and, a, and a, a charity, a registered charity, one of our aims is to share the the method of creating this community project. So right from the word go, I was teaching the embroidery stitches and the community way of working within a group because it's hard to work in a group. You know, you've got a group of people all with different personalities, all very unique, maybe lots of chiefs, <laughs> not enough Indians. And, and so there's a lot of conflict very often. And so we teach you various ways of, of, of how to cooperate within a group, how to make it work, how to make everybody feel that, that they've got some ownership of this joint project that you're doing. So very much, I mean, I, I have a huge file, a huge thick file of community projects that have been inspired, directly inspired by the Quaker Tapestry. So people have seen it and said, teach me how to do it because I want to make one. I remember one lovely one. There were, it was not far away. And I think it's Settle, which is, is not far down the road from Kendall. It was a, a, a woman who came in to see the exhibition and she lived in Settle and she was part of a history group of their village. And she took one look at these stories of real life people. And she said, oh, wow, we could tell our history of our village in this context, in this format. So she and 11 other women <laughs> came to a workshop and learned the stitches and the techniques. And they went away and made 12 panels. And they have that up in their village hall now. So that's not any, anybody, anything to do with Quakers. That's just a history group who already had done their research. And so they had all this wonderful material to, to choose from, to depict in their, in their history panels. And I know they're gorgeous because I was invited to the Grand Oak in the village hall with cake and buns and things. It was fantastic. Now, in this file, there are lots and lots and lots of those very, very similar stories of people producing uh, community projects um, all over the place. Um, in the run-up to the millennium years, that it was you couldn't get on the workshop for living money. One woman came to my workshops in in two thousand and four, and she she just breathed a sigh of re 
a relief when she when she came in and sat down she said do you know I've been trying to get on one of these workshops for four years <laughs> so they were very much in demand um I'm afraid the pandemic's put a bit bit of a, a full stop on those at the moment but um we're hoping to get back soon so you're talking about the panels inspiring other faith groups to make these. I guess there must be a lot of literature on these as well. On the other projects, you mean? Or even the tapestries themselves. Oh, the tapestries themselves. Yes, we have a, we have a, a collection of, of books. One of them is, and then you can see it on Zoom here. Your podcast listeners won't see it, but it's called the Quaker Tapestry Pictorial Guide. Uh, we've just, uh, over the last two years, we've just revised it, uh, updated it, put all the new things in about Quaker marriage uh, on the marriage panel. We haven't altered the marriage panel. It very much is in keeping with today, today's Quaker weddings. Um, but the text we've, we've sort of revised. We re-photographed all the the real tapestries so that they're all beautiful digital images that, that have gone into the book. Uh, another book that's very popular is, is called Living Threads. And that's about the making of the Quaker tapestry. And we were talking before the podcast about collecting audio archives as a sort of memory, a moment in time before people, you know, shuffle off <laughs> and we've lost them and their memories. And Jenny Levin, who wrote the Living Threads book for us, she did five years of research going round some of the 4,000 people who were involved in the making of it. And she went round with the old fashioned tape recorder on, you know, the wheels of tape and press play and record together. Um, and she taped conversations with them. She interviewed them. Um, she had hundreds and hundreds of hours of this over five years. And from that, she wrote this book about making the Quaker tapestry. So it's all about who were the designers, who were the children, little anecdotes and stories. These anecdotes are, are lovely. It's, it's sort of, I call it one of the levels of, of storytelling within the tapestry panels themselves. So you've got, you've got the history, the social history, but you, then you've got all the stories of the makers who made it. And this was a story of, of a children's class, the children's embroidery class, taken by one of the four embroidery teachers of the Quaker Tapestry. And she'd taken some uh, work basket and wools and hoops and things for the children, about eight different children, to design some fish that were going to appear in the sea underneath a ship called the Woodhouse, dating back to 1660-something. 16, it's a lovely historical story, but the fish story is she'd she'd asked the children to draw on their, their sort of spare calico, their practice piece, fish shapes, and then choose some wool from this fish-coloured wool basket that she'd sorted for them. And one little boy called Ben, I think it was about seven or eight, he went to her work basket and chose a bright purple. And when she saw Ben using this bright purple, she said, Ben, have you ever seen a fish? that's purple. And he thought about it for a while and he said, well, I've never not seen a purple fish. So he quite liked the purple. And 
when the children had all done their fish, they put all the sort of hoops together and, and they all looked at the different coloured fish and everything and, and said, well, which, you know, which fish should we show on the, on the panel with next to the boat or underneath the boat in the waves so that you can... And uh, they all like Ben's purple. So all the fish under the boat now in the real panel are all bright purple. And one of the little girls in the class said, can we please put some of that shiny embroidery thread? And what she meant was the gold or silver that we'd used, she'd seen in another panel. And then the fish will look like they're shimmering in the water. So there's gold thread on them as well. And Anne said at the end of that, she said, that was a lesson for me, she said, in not trying to preempt what children would choose, you know, or what people should choose, but to let people have their own way in design and, and things. She says, because those purple fish shine like little jewels out of the panel and the fish coloured wool that she'd sorted would have been very dull and boring. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about how you got involved with embroidery? Um, was that something that you were always interested in? This sort of style of embroidery is is very easy to do, actually. Um, I mean, my my degree, I did a generous degree in all sorts of subjects uh, to do with the arts, uh, you know, media studies, um, illustration. Textiles was one of them where I did print and uh, stitch and all sorts of things, uh, photography, 3D, you name it, I did everything. Um, so my degree was in dabbling in everything. And I've done that all my life. I don't sort of focus on one thing, although you could say I have done on the Quaker tapestry. But Anne knew when she started the project with children that it would have to be simple. And she chose, in, and originally she chose five stitches, some of, some of which are the oldest stitches we know, uh, and they appear on the Bayer Tapestry. Now, in 1981, Anne was doing a City and Guilds examination in, in embroidery. And part of that was for her to do a thesis. And her thesis was on the Bayer Tapestry. So that 11th century um, embroidery was very much in her head when she designed this project. So you'll see lots of similarities within that. And one of them is the stitches. But Anne simplified it. There are a hundred or so or more cruel embroidery stitches, but she honed it down to just five. And that meant that it was easy for beginners to learn and a challenge for the more experienced embroiderer. So they could really put their thinking caps on and how to, how to you know, really sort of make these stitches work for them. Um, I mean, in, in the process, she invented a new stitch. Um, she had no idea that she invented a new stitch. She wanted a stitch that would curve nicely because she said for the writing, she wanted the writing to be very easy to read. So she wanted nice sort of oval, rounded shapes. Um, and when you do embroidery, if you try and embroider a circle normally with embroidery stitches, you end up with like a feathering effect effect or like a 50 pence piece you know thing with corners on um but she'd invented this stitch that was the combination of two of the older stitches a split stitch and the stem stitch and worked together with a little twist in the wool she got it to curve beautifully without the feathering 
And it was only when she came to write the stitch guide that she was looking for its name. And she couldn't find it anywhere in any of her embroidery books. So she took it to the Royal School of Needlework in London and they asked her to um, demonstrate it and bring some samples, which she did. And then they asked her to leave the room. And um, when she came, was invited back into the room, they said, we can't find it. We think you've invented a new stitch. And don't forget, these stitches have been dug up in, you know, peat bog men's outfits and handbags and all sorts of things. So they're very old. Um, to invent a new stitch is, is lovely, is amazing. And they said, they suggested, they said, can we call it the Quaker stitch after the tapestry it was designed for? So she invented a new stitch? Yeah. Wow. And yeah. so is that used, is that used a lot today or do you know? I do. I do. And it is. I have found it in other new stitch guides for general embroidery, ones that we haven't written. And um, in now, if you go and do your City and Gills embroidery course, which is known nationwide, at least, you will be taught the Quaker stitch. And we get a lot of people coming in. Stitchers are, they don't need any persuading to come to this museum because they're already hooked. <laughs> because it's called a tapestry. Uh, but one of the things they want to learn is how to do this Quaker stitch. They're intrigued. And it's, it's only easy when you've been taught how to do it properly. Quakers came to Ireland in the mid-17th century after William Edmondson established the first meeting house in Lurgan in the north in 1654. Having spent some time in the military, he came to live most of his life in the once Quaker village of Rosenalis in County Leash. He died in 1712 and you'll find his grave at the burial ground in Mount Melick. The Friends Historical Library and Archives at Quaker House in Dublin contains a wide range of documents, books and letters dating back to the early days of Friends in Ireland. Christopher Moriarty is curator of the library and part of a group of volunteers who take care of its collections. He says the early records of Friends in Ireland are quite comprehensive. It was uh, 1669 that uh, Fox told the meetings what he, what they should keep. This was, some of them had probably been keeping them for some years before that, but this was really when, when they began and when the archive when the archive dates to. And we have uh, volumes and volumes going back to uh, meetings held in, from 1670 and, and onwards. We have thousands of pages of records of those. Uh, the, where the meetings were to be held uh, was important and it led, of course, uh, really re probably quite, quite soon uh, to moving out when the membership got too big to be held in rooms in private houses that uh, then meeting houses were built, uh, were, were built specially. So that was then so all sorts of things like the, the maintenance of the buildings, but then also very, very important, the, uh, the, the personnel involved in running, because it was a matter of the gravest importance to Quakers that you did not have an individual <laughs> establishing himself as the ruler. Uh, it has to be said in the earliest years, uh, Fox was very much at the top in England and so was Ed Edmondson in Ireland. Uh, 
we all think of those of us who know know something about Edmondson <laughs> decided that in, in spite of we we admire him as a man of uh, deep faith uh, colossal energy he traveled um, traveled through Ireland but and this was uh, traveling through 17th century Ireland was no joke <laughs> but uh, but Edmondson traveled when Quakers got into serious trouble as they did very very often uh, he uh, put a huge effort into trying to uh, get them out of jail or whatever was needed what happened for a long time uh, these things like minutes books and uh, births, marriages, and death records, and all of that, they were kept by the local monthly meetings. Uh, but and most of the time they were kept and kept very well. But the risk of this there was that if the clerk of a monthly meeting died. Possibly they wouldn't. <laughs> there, there was a possibility of, of loss, and so they became uh, they they became centralised and uh, the uh, and and stored um, in st store uh, actually stored in meeting houses. And as soon as a minute book got filled, it was uh, it went to the uh, headquarters of the monthly meeting. But then in the course of the 19th century, but these were actually transferred either to Dublin or uh, in Northern Ireland to the French School in Lisburn, uh, which, is, which is where they are. But it, it is a very comprehensive collection. The overall impression is of how very good the original setup was and how there's been very little revision of it. We really keep very, very much the the system was was uh, organised in the the last later a uh, in the last few decades of the seventeenth century, and uh, the 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 structure is pretty well there. One very important different uh, change that did take place was the. Uh, in the for the first uh, at least a hundred and fifty years or so, uh, there were separate men's women men's meetings and women's meetings. This was meetings for business. The I mean, the meeting for worship, of course, was uh, uh, was male and female. Uh, the men looked after the uh, particular the business side, the meeting houses, and so on. Uh, women looked after the the social side, uh, visiting the sick, uh, looking after the poor, and so on. Uh, and women, they had a particular input into into marriages. But so for a very long time, business was conducted independently by men's meetings and women's meetings, and they were merged. I think uh, early in the nineteenth century. And that brings to an end the first episode of The Friendly Podcast. If you like what you've heard, don't forget you can subscribe to our social channels. And if you'd like to find out more about Quakers in Ireland, log on to our website, quakers.ie.